Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. China is often regarded as a success story of market economics. Since it began lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, once the Communist Party began easing economic restrictions and opening the country to the global economy. But to this day, even though it has achieved impressive economic growth for decades, China remains a country ruled by the Communist Party. So here are the key questions going forward. First, how successful will China's mixed economy be at generating growth and innovation once the low-hanging fruit of industrialization has been picked? And second, how should the United States react to the rise of China as an economic and geopolitical competitor? I'll be discussing these questions today with David Dollar. David is a senior fellow in the John L. Thornton China Center at the Brookings Institution and host of the Brookings Trade Podcast, Dollar and Cents. He's also co-editor of China 2049, Economic Challenges of a Rising Global Power, released in June of last year. David, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, and really great to talk to you. We often look at China as a success story that was enabled by China embracing, to some extent, market economics. How much truth is there to that story? So I think there are two basic narratives about China. You know, it was a almost completely planned economy under Chairman Mao. They had disastrous economic results. They just created a huge amount of poverty. So one narrative is they've taken big steps away from planning toward capitalism, you know, and that's been enough of a shift toward capitalism to generate all the positive dynamics of market economies. The other narrative is if you just go there and take a snapshot, you're struck by the fact that it's a very mixed economy with a lot of state enterprises, state intervention, industrial policy. Uh, So another line of thinking is, well, they're successful because they have this really uh, very effective authoritarian state. Now I'm completely in the first camp I think starting from where they were, they made big leaps toward opening the economy to trade and foreign investment. They've created space for a domestic private sector. They're making progress, improving intellectual property rights. So I emphasize the Delta. In other words, the big change from complete planning to now a at least partially market economy is the impetus of their success. Is that where they're going directionally? That first narrative, are we still proceeding along that path? Because you don't seem to hear quite as much about it. Certainly you hear about China having, uh, having big companies that you know, people in the United States have heard of. But yet what you often hear about is the Chinese government and the Communist Party directing the economy. Or is that second path the more relevant path right now? As as I see it, there have been fits and starts in their shift toward a market economy. Uh, I think the real stalling took place under the previous party secretary, Hu Jintao, 
uh, you know, back in the, the mid 2000s and then immediately after the global financial crisis in 2008, definitely China's economic reform stalled. Then more recently, Xi Jinping has taken over and he's done a lot to compress whatever little space there was for political debate. You know, so he's definitely tightened up politically, but I actually think in the last few years, there's been some very significant economic reform. You know, China, for example, signed this big uh, free trade agreement with the ASEAN countries, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand. You know, that's a significant step forward in opening the economy. Uh, they're creating more space for the domestic private sector. Uh, so, I, you know, I think they're continuing to move ahead with economic reform, but it, then, it does tend to go in fits and starts. And, you know, it's reasonable for outsiders to worry that maybe it'll come to a halt. Of, of course, there are certainly people in this country who are not worried that it will come to a halt, but they would like it to come to a halt. They obviously they view the, the China's economic growth as just as powering a geopolitical uh, competitor. But it sounds like you would still assume this is going to be a fast growing economy for many years into the future. Well, I try not to assume anything. Uh, I guess I would say that if they continue to reform, and that involves continuing to open up the economy and rely on market forces in different ways. Yeah, then I would expect them to continue to be successful. The gr growth rate naturally slows down as you move into middle income. So they're not going to grow at 10% per year the way they did in the past. But they certainly have the potential to grow at around 5% for quite a bit longer. Uh, but on the other hand, if some of these status elements we've talked about, you know, if they uh, enhance the role of state enterprises and increase government intervention in the economy. Uh, those are the kind of things that set you back. Uh, so where they end up is really going to depend a lot on the policies they pursue. So getting sort of from where they are, where they were uh, in the 1970s to where China is today, it's a process of opening the economy, attracting foreign investment, creating that space uh, for the private sector, uh, industrialization. What, but getting, getting to where they will be a vastly richer country by 2049, what are the ch key challenges to that process? Well, they've got a lot of domestic challenges. That's what our book, China 2049, right. is about. And there are really a lot of them. If I had to pick out a few key issues, the first one I would pick is demographics. You know, because of the decline in fertility, you know, they're now in a very difficult demographic situation. Their labor force has peaked and is going to begin to decline. And the number of old people is just going to rise explosively. Uh, the number of people over 65 will basically double over the next 30 years. There'll be more aged people, old age people in China than in Europe and the United States combined. And within that, the group that's over 85, which tends to require a lot of care, that group is gonna triple uh, over the next 30 years. So, you know, dealing well with that is a big social challenge and one that has economic implications because the labor force is gonna be declining. So you're gonna have fewer workers 
we're going to be supporting this increasingly large group of retirees. So that, you know, that's a very significant economic challenge. So China's becoming richer and they want to be an economic superpower and push the technological frontier. They're also a surveillance state that disappears its top CEO sometimes. The space for freedom in China can change at a moment's notice. So can a totalitarian country like this actually push the technological frontier forward in the long run? No, definitely not. You know, I think the foundation of innovation is, is primarily a set of fundamentals like intellectual property rights protection, having a great education system, having a flexible financial system that can fund startups and provide different types of services at different stages. Uh, and that, you know, the property rights are the heart of that. And so when you have uh, the state essentially intervening in property rights in an ad hoc way, as we've seen recently with a number of Chinese companies, then of course that undermines, uh, you, know, you know, it undermines the incentives to produce and to innovate. Right. I'd like to believe that a country needs to be a liberal, democratic, capitalist country to become as rich and advanced as the United States. But does China's political system need to become more like ours, ultimately, in order to be a true economic superpower? So I would say history's on this, your side in this argument. No authoritarian country has reached above about 50% of U.S. per capita GDP in real terms. And I'm not counting the oil states, which are just sitting on a lot of oil. But if you leave the oil states aside, nobody's reached half of our living standards uh, unless they were a democracy. Uh, and that's probably not a coincidence. Now, that does mean China's got a fair amount of room it can continue to run. It's at about one quarter of US productivity in real terms, you know, purchasing power parity terms. Uh, so it, it, it can continue to grow well uh, and obviously become a larger economy for a while. Uh, but history suggests that without more political liberalization, freedom of speech, uh, strengthening of property rights that requires democratic institutions, without these things, it's unlikely that China would make it beyond about half of U.S. real productivity. Now, having said that, you know, I think we should be careful not to assume that historical patterns are immutable laws. Um, but this is a pretty powerful regularity we see that everybody who's rich in the world is basically democratic, except those oil states that I mentioned. What do you think the Chinese believe about that? Do they believe they have figured out a different path? Uh, toward being a wealthy country that does not require uh, mimicking US institutions, uh, you know, liberal democratic institutions over the long run? Do they think they found a different way to get rich? So I would roughly speaking identify three groups and they're not necessarily equal in size. I do think there are a lot of people in China who accept the first part of what I was saying is there's quite a bit of room for China to run. You know, it can double you know, it's real income um, kind of still be within this historical pattern. And then beyond that, you're talking quite a few decades into the future. Uh, and then I think there's a group that 
is, is kind of solidly behind what we might call Western thinking on this. You know, that China really needs political reform uh, in order to advance further than upper middle income, for example. And then frankly, there's a group who thinks that China's created a superior model uh, and that that historical pattern is now gonna be broken by China reaching you know, you know, very high per capita income with an authoritarian system. So I like to remind people that it's a big heterogeneous country with a lot of different thinking inside of it. Uh, I'm surprised we've gone this long in our conversation and th that I have not or have not talked about my talked about my 10 day trip uh, to China 10 years ago, which is where I draw a lot of my authority and expertise uh, about China. But one thing that always struck me, um, I went kind of this journalist uh, junket, was how often our uh, Communist Party minders would, would talk, would use the words balance, harmony, humility, stability, as if to send the message that China has no ambitions outside making their country as prosperous as possible. Now it's 10 years later, uh, they seem more aggressive. What does China want internationally? That's a very complicated question. You can point to some examples that suggest that China just wants to fit in, maybe see some adjustments at the margin. For example, I see China as a good player in the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. You know, China's the sixth largest donor to the concessional window of the World Bank, which provides aid to poorest countries, mostly in Africa. So you can find examples of China, you know, making an effort to fit into the existing system, which has largely been set up by the United States following World War II. But then, of course, we can quickly come up with a whole bunch of counterexamples. Uh, this Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, for example. You know, it's, it's lending money in a non-transparent way uh, to quite a few developing countries, often bringing in Chinese contractors, Chinese workers, saddling some countries with excessive debt. Uh, what they're doing in the South China Sea, that's a very clear example because you've actually had an uh, international decision by the relevant UN tribunal that you know, they do not have rights uh, over most of that area. I mean, you've got essentially uninhabited rocks in the South China Sea. None of them is entitled to an economic exclusion zone. So the basic Chinese position on the South China Sea runs against international law. And, you know, we can find lots of examples. The recent border clash with India, it's hard to know exactly what happened there, uh, but, you know, that, that's, a, that's a bad example. So, I think one of the things that's complicated about assessing China is that you've got these contradictory examples where they seem to be fitting in with global norms in some areas and then clearly violating international rules in other areas. Certainly there are people who want to treat China as a threat rather than just as a competitor. They want to cut China out of supply chains, raise our defense budget, and treat China's regime like the Soviet Union. What are your thoughts on that? Right. So I don't subscribe to that view. I think the situation is very different than the situation with the Soviet Union. We had 
very little economic integration between the West and the Soviet Union back during the Cold War. Now you've got China deeply integrated into the world economy. It's the largest trading nation. It's a major investor. Uh, it's actually an important source of innovation, generating a lot of patents and new innovations. So one problem we face is if, if we want to go down the road of treating China as an adversary, almost none of our traditional allies are going to follow us down that road because they're deeply integrated with China and they don't they have a lot of worries about specific Chinese behavior. They would like to change Chinese behavior in certain areas, uh, but they don't subscribe to a Cold War. So we're going to end up fighting that thing on our own. Uh, and you know, that, that's not likely to work out well. Um, yes, I mean, certainly that's a good point that, that we have, you know, that our, that our uh, allies in this Cold War don't want to do it. Could that change um, if China begins to be seen as, you know, not just an authoritarian state um, that may have taken a bit of a, a detour on its way to becoming uh, the next South Korea and, and Japan, but it's something really far more nefarious, that it's a totalitarian state, that it is practicing ethnic cleansing. In that situation, um, might we have more allies in a, in, a, in a Cold War than we currently have? That's certainly possible. You know, a lot will depend on Chinese behavior. You know, one of the problems with an authoritarian system, you've got Xi Jinping has been in power for almost 10 years. And there's a modern norm in China that leader at that level serves 10 years and then retires. But clearly, Xi Jinping is not going to retire. He's going to stay on for at least five more years. Uh, as you get that kind of longevity, uh, historically, you often get policy mistakes. You know, the problem with having a, the same leader for a long time is you know, they end up making some mistakes. They're wedded to them. You don't have any new political blood coming in to try something different. You know, that's clearly what happened with Mao Zedong. Uh, well, actually, I mean, as, a, as an economic leader, he was pretty disastrous right from the start. Uh, but he became increasingly wedded to you know, some, some uh, really bad approaches. Uh, and, you know, they were stuck with them for a long period of time. You know, I, I, I think of democracy as, you know, as an opportunity to, to uh, get rid of bad leaders. And the thing with authoritarianism, you know, China had Deng Xiaoping for a long time. Uh, he proved to be very effective in many domains, not all, but, you know, in economically, he was very effective. Uh, then you get someone else for a long period of time. If they make some bad choices and they're wedded to them, you know, then, then you're basically stuck with that person. So with Xi Jinping in power, some of these trends we discuss, like Chinese activity in the South China Sea or undermining certain aspects of international trade and investment, if that accelerates, then you could certainly see some of our partners changing their attitudes. Who does China think won the U.S.-China trade war under President Trump? I honestly think their answer is that nobody won the trade war. First of all, it's still basically going on. We have 25% tariff imposed on about half of our imports from China. Uh, 
yeah, this is certainly not not been a good thing for China. Um, you know, it's uh, created some some uh, economic problems for them. On the other hand, I don't think it's done anything particular for the U.S. You know, the Federal Reserve did a study. We've lost over a hundred thousand jobs. The thing about protectionism, it you know, it at a shallow glance, it seems like a good idea. Oh, we're going to protect certain jobs and certain industries, but then there are all these indirect effects. Uh, and historically, whenever we've tried protectionism, uh, it's actually led to a loss of jobs. Uh, typically, it leads to higher trade deficits, not lower trade deficits, because it re has reduced our exports more than it's reduced our imports. That seems to be happening now again, by the way, our trade. I'm not that worried about our trade deficit, but President Trump obviously was. And the end result of the tariffs is our trade deficit is actually getting larger. Um, so I don't really think anybody's won from the trade war. And I, I certainly don't think the Chinese believe they won. I read a lot of Wall Street research and they've all it's all pretty bullish right now. What I don't see uh, is uh, any mention or any concern uh, that one thing that could disrupt this bullish economic scenario is a military conflict between the United States and China. Um, I feel like what I hear is that people think it's a, becoming more rather than less likely over the near to, to medium term. What's your view? Well, it's definitely becoming more likely, but I think it's pretty unlikely. I mean, it's a pretty low probability. Uh, I'm pretty, pretty sure the Chinese are not looking for military conflict over Taiwan. Uh, you know, in the next few years, it would certainly completely disrupt their economic aspirations. It would you know, make them an international pariah. It's a good example of something if if there were an unprovoked attack from the mainland on Taiwan, that's the kind of action that would completely change the attitude of U.S. allies very quickly. And I think you would see universal sanctions imposed on China and it would really set them back economically. Plus, the Taiwan military uh, can do a fairly effective job defending the island, not that they could win that war, but it would end up being a bloody you know, quite a horrible situation. So I, I don't see the mainland choosing that. Uh, it would be different if Taiwan declared independence. That's the kind of provocative act that you know, might very well draw a military response. But pretty sure the U.S. is quietly telling Taiwan, just reminding them they know this, that, you know, that that's the kind of status quo that uh, Taiwan can't declare independence as a separate country. You know, the government in Taiwan purports to be the government of all of China. Uh, and if they change that position to trying to make Taiwan an independent country, uh, that likely would draw a military response. So definitely there are risks, uh, but I don't see anybody who, you know, I, the three sides do not want military conflict. So I think it would take a mistake miscalculation to actually bring it about. Well, there's some talk the United States should uh, boycott the, the uh, next, I believe, Winter Olympics, which are in Beijing. And you've, you've had criticism of in this country of the NBA and Disney uh, about their relationship with China. 
And I'm wondering if you think that kind of movement in the United States almost it sort of makes, you know, reminds me of sort of the, you know, the 1980s, uh, you know, disinvestment campaign uh, against South, you know, against South Africa, where South Africa is treated really as a pariah state that that proper countries should not be engaged with. I, mean, I sort of mentioned this a little bit with with Europe. But do you think that movement in the United States has any legs or is that something you think the Chinese are concerned about that? Other countries will begin to treat them like a prior state, where even, even if the governments want to engage, that there'll be more of sort of this kind of organic bottom-up movement that this is this is not a country that should be treated um, like any other country. That 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 they're that they're a bad country. I think there are definitely bottom-up movements around specific issues, and the most obvious one at the moment is Xinjiang and the treatment of Uyghurs. Uh, I don't really see much potential for a a broader bottom-up movement of, you know, treating China as a pariah. Uh, you certainly don't have much appetite for that in Europe. You know, they've come through with sanctions related to Xinjiang, uh, and the Chinese are certainly unhappy about that. Chinese are unhappy about a, a kind of a growing global movement to shine a spotlight on what's happening uh, with the Uyghurs. Uh, but I don't see a larger global popular movement. Yeah, I think our companies are going to have to contend with this difficult environment that if they want to do business in China, they're going to have to pay attention to public opinion back in the U.S. Uh, and they're also going to have to pay, pay attention to public opinion in China. So it creates a very complicated situation for companies but most of our big companies are committed to being in the U.S., obviously, and being in China. So most companies think they can manage this. Finally, would you talk to policymakers in this country? Are there any common misunderstandings that you hear over and over again uh, about how they perceive China? Well, I'm more of a macroeconomist than anything else. So I you know, think there is a misperception that we, we've made a big stink about the bilateral trade imbalance between the U.S. and China, which I think is not particularly important. Uh, you know, China had a large overall trade surplus in the mid-2000s that got up above 10% of GDP. That is an issue. That can be disruptive for the global economy. But they've corrected that. Uh, you know, so I feel like in our discourse, or our internal American discourse in China, we, we never recognize that we've actually won some battles. And so China brought its overall surplus, the broadest measure down below 1% of GDP because its currency is appreciated. It's opened up more to imports. It's done a lot of things that we advocated that they should be doing. Uh, but we continue to make kind of an issue about the bilateral trade imbalance. Uh, currency issues. The Treasury just recently came out with their currency report indicating that China is not a currency manipulator, which is frankly just a recognition of reality. Uh, but in our political discourse, we still have a lot of discussion about China, you know, macroeconomic policies distorting the global system. I think that I think that's just not accurate anymore. My guest today has been David Dollar. David, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great to talk to you. A lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks.